Gentlemen, welcome, welcome, welcome once again to Progressive News Network. I'm one of your hosts. Uh, I welcome also our executive producer and uh, uh, chief host, Ms. Brooke Hines. Uh, it's uh, very nice to be uh, back with you for an episode, and uh, it's a very special episode. Uh, it's one that we hope will expand your consciousness, one that gives you a chance to see uh, just a whole new view of the universe, of mind, and of the possible. Uh, This is an episode that Brooke and I talked about for a long time. Uh, It's part of uh, that, that group of Progressive News Network shows that deals with a little more than just politics, In fact, it deals with the the ultimate issue, that of consciousness. Uh, Brooke, uh, your experiences with uh, consciousness, consciousness expansion, uh, what what intrigues you about the topic of consciousness expansion? Oh, well, um, I guess, shoot. First off, I was a uh, philosophy and humanities major in college, and uh, because it's just in my nature, I took uh, I did it backwards. I took the upper division classes first and lower division classes later. So one of the first classes I took was philosophy of mind, and uh, I took that the same semester. I took mysticism. <laughs> And the Eastern religions. So you might say that the concepts, the concepts of consciousness, uh, I, I dove right into. But you know that that was 
pretty much concurrent with, uh, you know, other types of um, wanderings and uh, um, uh, poking at consciousness, you know, kind of as a, in a do-it-yourself Independent kind of researcher. Absolutely. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, some of us, uh, both in the East and in the West, have explored a variety of techniques to alter consciousness. Uh, it's always been my contention that there's something absolutely wired in to the human uh, that wants to transcend, that wants to experience an altered state. Uh, you don't have to look too far. You can watch toddlers spin around in a circle and get all giddy because they've sort of had that feeling of extending beyond the, the physical body. And, of course, we know there's all kinds of mystical paths, chanting, breath control, breathing exercises, uh, imagination training. Many of these are utilized by what you might call traditional religious groups. But many are used... Uh, if you will, in, in avant-garde independent research. And, of course, a large part of that, uh, that desire to change consciousness, you know, uh, some people uh, take to what we might call a debilitative level uh, with things like alcohol and drug abuse. But other people have utilized substances for transcendental purposes. Uh, I'm sure you've... Uh, You've heard uh, a variety of anecdotes, Brooke, on some of those uh, means and methods of whether it be chemical or plant-based uh, techniques to alter consciousness. Absolutely, you know, and uh, uh, I think it was Ken Kesey, Ken Kesey via Tom Wolf, uh, and at the end of the electric Kool-Aid acid test, uh, said that it is our um, and this is way back then, said that it is our uh, uh, journey now to put down the uh, the uh, chemicals to reach these states and to graduate from it. He used the word graduate and to find other um, other methods to to uh, access these forms of consciousness. Now, I think that 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 made sense for the merry pranksters who had just spent however long riding around in the bus and you know continually um, in that <laughs> further further right continually in that state of mind um however i think we're at a place now where it's completely appropriate to start talking in terms of a psychedelic renaissance which is part of what jerry brown addresses in this interview that that uh that um you know we could use a little bit more um expansive thinking uh, just generally, and this is a way to, to to access that kind of expansiveness. It's not the only way, but it's one way. You know, one of the things I think is most particularly interesting about Professor Brown's research is that he grounds it in what we might call the traditional religious tradition. And his research has shown uh, he and his uh, lovely wife and collaborator have uh, done with uh, their books uh, shown that the psychedelic experience, the religious mushroom, if you will, or the God stuff, the soma of uh, Huxley, uh, these have been used to propel the mystic experience for literally a, m a millennia. So 
without too much further ado, let's go here. Here, part one of Professor Brown. And uh, Professor Brown shares his insights and his own introduction to these uh, experiences. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Progressive News Network has the great honor of bringing Professor uh, Jerry Brown, uh, anthropologist and uh, researcher in matters psychedelic, uh, both for their sociological impact and for their therapeutic impact. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to also introduce Brooke Hines, our executive producer, and uh, the three of us are going to have a little discussion. Uh, Dr. Brown, could talk a little bit about uh, how you first got interested or introduced to the world of psychedelic phenomena. Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you very much, Rick uh, and Brooke, for having me on the show. Um, this really happened back in uh, 1973. Um, I was a founding professor of anthropology at Florida International University and started there in 1972, right when the university opened. I was in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at that time. And in 1973, a friend of mine in Miami invited me to attend a rainbow family gathering high in the mountains of the Rockies, in the Rocky Mountain National Forest, uh, near an area called Strawberry Lake. And there I experienced, with uh, 5,000 other people, <laughs> my first uh, LSD trip. And while it was not as disorienting as the surprising experience of Dr. Albert Hoffman, who took the first LSD trip in recorded history, uh, unplanned, of course, uh, he thought he was dying. He thought he was losing his mind and dying. I had a very frightening experience that spun me off into a Carlos Castaneda-like world of competing forces and powers and power objects, and it really frightened me. There was a period where I honestly thought I was losing uh, control of my faculties. And I realized, one, yes, these uh, LSD and other psychoactive substances are indeed extremely powerful. And number two, I wanted to learn more, a lot more about them. And as a professor, I designed and taught a course starting in 1975 called Hallucinogens and Culture at Florida International University. It's still taught today, although I retired in 2014. And I believe it is the first four-credit college course in the United States on psychedelics. So that was my introduction. And uh, I went to my union representative at that time, and I said, Bob, uh, can I talk about my experiences? We have to remember, this is after the 1970 Controlled Substances Act, which made LSD, psilocybin, and most other known psychedelics, Schedule I uh, criminal activities, no uh, redeeming factors, could not be used on human subjects. And when Timothy Leary was the most dangerous man in America, according to Nixon, uh, if only that were our biggest problem today, and he <laughs> said, I said, uh, to my union representative, uh, you know, can I, can I talk about my experience? He says, absolutely not. And I said, well, can I have students talk about their experiences? He says, not if you want to keep your job. And I said, well, I guess field work, the keystone of anthropology is completely out of the question. And he said, not if you want to get tenure. 
So this was kind of a paradox, and I decided this was not going to be <clears throat> a just say no course, a kind of in um, obsequiousness to Nancy Reagan's uh, policy, and it wasn't going to be uh, everything to great about psychedelics. It was going to be an academic study of psychedelics and culture. So I used a sort of Harvard case study method used in law schools and business schools and looked at the key landmark studies in psychedelics and culture and history. Uh, how Soma, what the, the uh, ancient potion of the Hindu Rig Veda was embedded at the base in the Hindu religion. How uh, the reindeer herders of Siberia, known as the fathers of shamanism, had been using Amanita muscaria, that red and white decorated mushroom, for thousands of years in their shamanic practices. How there was a psychoactive fungi at the base of the Greek Eleusinian mysteries, which went on for 2,000 years. So that was my introduction to psychedelics, and that was uh, the course that I designed. And that's how I got my introduction to it. It wasn't until 2006, if you want to touch on this later on, that I made a surprising discovery of a psychoactive mushroom in a, in a Christian church in Roslyn Chapel in Scotland that I went, my wife, co-author, uh, research photographer, Julie M. Brown and I uh, began the research and were inspired undertake the research that eventually led to our book, The Psychedelic Gospels. Uh, since that time, we've been researching, writing on both the history of psychedelics and religion, and also on the psychedelic uh, renaissance, including mystical experience in psychedelics. And okay. I guess, uh, Julie, starting as a psychonaut in the 1960s and in the 1970s, uh, psychedelics have been really fundamental for our life in terms of developing uh, psychedelic experiences that led to passion and purpose in terms of career work uh, that led to a profound experience that helped me choose love over fear in, in developing a relationship with Julie and even psychedelics ayahuasca that helped me overcome a rare depression late in life. So that's a brief overview of how I became involved in the field of psychedelics. Professor, let me ask you one question about the very about your, should we say, entree into the field of the psychedelic experience. Uh, in that time, in the late '60s and early '70s, of course, this was uh, the era of uh, the, the what we call the culture wars nowadays, uh, where the young people had kind of their approach to to reality rejected a lot of the. Uh, consumerism. They rejected a lot of rat race ideas and were looking for something else and creating their own alternative economics and social dynamics. Um, a lot of people were kind of lining up, uh, where did you fall on this uh, this arc from uh, the, the free love, uh, uh, ex drop, tune in, turn on, drop out uh, mentality to the you know more conservative, and of course, the, the pro-war and all those other things that went to it. I was wondering, did you have any concepts uh, when you had that first experience at that uh, that World Family Gathering? Uh, did you expect this to be just a fun experience, kind of a mild intoxication, or did you have an inkling that there might be more to it from what you heard? You know, we always heard about set and setting. Uh, were you set up 
to have fun, or was this set up to be something a little deeper? Well, um, I had obviously read a little bit on the topic and could not be oblivious uh, to Timothy Leary and the psychedelic movement that was going on. Uh, we have to understand that, and, and I think it was a, a blessing that we experienced in the baby boomer generation, that we at least were born in a generation where we had the illusion that we were definitely going to change the world through the civil <laughs> rights movement, uh, through the anti-war movement, which I believe was uh, successful in ending the Vietnam War, uh, through the uh, Cesar Chavez and the farm workers movement, where I did my research and my doctor dissertation in anthropology at Cornell University, through the feminist movement, through the beginning of the environmental movement, which came out of the Santa Barbara oil spill in the late 60s. And, um, and the hippie movement, although I was, had been, uh, and continued to be a political organizer and kind of looked down on the hedonist hippies, sure, in a sure, way, sure. we felt it was all part of one movement. It was a part of a movement that was rebelling against uh, what we saw as a dysfunctional uh, love society that did not advocate and sponsor human growth, well-being, economic security as its values. So definitely that was part of it. And looking back today, oh my goodness, you know, over half a century, <laughs> half a century later, uh, I am amazed because we just saw ourselves as rebels and outlaws, and this was sort of a rebellious thing that we could get involved with, at how global and widespread the psychedelic movement is, and how led by the scientific and medical advances of the psychedelic renaissance uh, being um, spearheaded by people like Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins and NYU and UCLA researchers showing the healing benefits for depression, for post-traumatic stress disorder that psychedelics are having. I am really in awe of how this has evolved. Um, at that time, after my initial frightening experience, I realized that I, I didn't get the instant nirvana, you know, the Satori level 24 that Leary and, and Ramdas were kind of talking about. So I wanted to learn more, and I, and I came to understand that the experiences I, ha I were having were a reflection of, you know, deep fears and anxieties that I had about life at that time. And for me, uh, as a seeker for deeper understanding, deeper truth, and being an anthropologist and knowing that for millennia, I mean, we have the earliest archaeological records going back um, you know, 11,000 years to the, to the uh, mountain uh, shamans of Algeria, where you see a, a beheaded mushroom shaman decorated all over his body with, with mushrooms. That, Tribal societies and also great world religions had approached these substances as portals to the sacred. And I looked at them that way. Uh, I didn't see this as a recreational activity. In fact, the seminal activities that I've had, I would always approach them with cleansing, fasting, no sex before, uh, light diet, to try to open myself up 
to having to letting the spirit come through. I know there are many different approaches to that. Today, there's a medical model. There's a hedonistic model. Let's party and have fun. And there's a Netflix film that's come out about have a good trip, and it's celebrities talking about their psychedelic experiences, almost cast it as a, as a you know, strange experience, party drug. Uh, there's certainly a medical model being developed. But I really saw it. Uh, as a portal to the sacred. In fact, for Julie and myself, um, being agnostic uh, at, at best, this was really our first experience of the divine. And this is why uh, significant researchers like Carl Rook at Boston University relabeled psychedelics as entheogens, entheogens from the Greek word, root words, and within, theo, God, divine, and gen, generate, to generate the divine within. And we have found that uh, this is what our experience was, that it opened up at times a portal to divine wisdom, to cosmic consciousness, to true mystical experience. And what I find to be amazing, and I don't use that word lightly, is that in the research that's going on at Johns Hopkins, with successful reduction of anxiety for terminally ill cancer patients and with MDMA for uh, overcoming the trauma of post-traumatic stress disorder, the mystical experience is the key to successful therapeutic hearing, healing. The mystical experience is the key to successful therapeutic healing. And in fact, the, it is the intensity of the mystical experience that's directly correlated with um, success, successful psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Now, I had these kinds of experiences on my own, not in a therapeutic setting, um, spontaneously using at times LSD, psilocybin, and ayahuasca. But again, the mystical experience was at the key, at the center of these. Um, <clears throat> thanks, Rick. Uh, I'm really interested in in that particular uh, uh, angle that mystical experience is is key to healing because I feel like uh, going back to the. Uh, mushroom iconography, the psychedelic iconography in Christianity, uh, it, it, it seems to me that the church or, or uh, Gnostic traditions served different kinds of purposes uh, than they do now. So we look at religion as detached from life, a larger sense of life, and it, it seems to me like all of this might have been folded in together uh, it, it is centuries ago or whatever. And so this direct direct line to the divine, the ability to find the divine within with the use of uh, certain uh, plant medicines, 
it, it, to me, it's there's this practical level to it where where we kind of view things as partying or 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 just about the mystical, and we separate that from other parts of life. I think that other at other times there was more uh, consolidation that, that this was all this experience was more integrated. Yes, there's no doubt about that. And the uh, let me make two reference points to this. One is from our research with the psychedelic gospels and also the research that's gone on on the role of psychedelics in historical world religions. Mystical experience isn't the key as it the fundamental basis, an experience of the divine, of knowing the authentic voice of the god or the goddess of religion. And the cover of our book shows an image from the prayer book called the Great Canterbury Psalter that was created in the uh, places where the scriptorum at Canterbury Cathedral around 1180. And it is a series, this, this prayer book begins with a um, series of illustrations, richly drawn, richly colored and illustrated with sort of gold leaf embedded there. And it shows God creating plants in Genesis. But actually, God is creating psychedelic mushrooms. And there are four psychoactive mushrooms in the creation. What I find very interesting, the book goes on through the ministry of Jesus after he's baptized. And he's on his healing mission. And there is an image there of uh, one of the stories we know of Jesus as a healer, Jesus healing the leper. And in that panel of the folio, we see Jesus laying his hands on the leper and performing a healing ceremony. And the scroll in the leper's left hand, which is in Latin, which translates to master, if you want, you may cleanse me. Curiously, the scroll that the leper is holding is not directed upward toward Jesus, but points to and merges with the stem of a tan psilocybin mushroom at the base of the panel. In turn, Jesus is holding a scroll, and this is the way they showed communication in these drawings, in his left hand that extends to the back of the leper that says, I want to be cleansed. Here, the biblical artist is making a direct link between Jesus' healing ministry and the curing power of sacred mushrooms. So we need to understand that in many tribal societies, including among Maria Sabina of the Mazatec Indians of Mexico, where the Westerners would come in looking for God, looking for the mystical experience, it was very often used for the fundamental process of healing. Now, let's talk a little bit about what is a mystical experience? Well, uh, a mystical experience includes a sense of cosmic unity and sacredness. You're connected with all living things. A positive mood and attitude that comes into your being. A transcendence of time and space. This is out of time and space. A sense of meeting your true or authentic voice or having an authentic voice of the Godhood come through you. And the experience is usually ineffable. In other words, it cannot easily be put into words. Now, the research that went on 
on mystical experience because in the 60s and in the 70s, you know, there were many anecdotal uh, stories about, and certainly people like Leary were saying, well, you know, you'll experience God, you'll know God, you'll experience the divine. So a student of Timothy Leary's by the name of Walter Pankey, who was a graduate student in Leary's psilocybin project, conducted a study in 1962 uh, known as the Miracle of Marsh Chapel. And it is a true double-blind experiment to see if psilocybin administered in a religious setting could induce a mystical experience. And Panky took 20 Protestant divinity students and he put them in a lower room in Marsh Chapel at Boston University. And one and it was on the it was uh, the uh, Easter Sunday um, experiment. It's also known as the Good Friday. I'm sorry, it's the Good Friday. It's known as the Good Friday experiment. And one half of the students, ten, were given a significant dose of psilocybin, and the other ten were given a placebo, niacin, B12. Well, nine out of the ten who were given the psilocybin had a full-blown religious or mystical experience, including Houston Smith, who went on to become a very well-known professor of religion, who said it was the most incredible cosmic homecoming he has ever experienced. And now he truly understood the things he had been reading about and studying in the Bible for, for many years. Uh, the research was validated by questionnaires to the students and by the observations of, of researchers who were there. And then there was, 25 years later, a follow-up study to Panky's Good Friday experiment conducted by Rick Doblin, who is the founder of the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic uh, Studies, um, MAPS, M-A-P-S dot org. And in his 25-year follow-up study, Doblin found and found seven of the, of the people who were in the original Marsh Chapel study, and all of them said that their psilocybin experience was either one, the most significant experience of their life, or one of the most significant experiences of their life and had positive benefits. One of the uh, founders or, or a past president of the American Psychological Association said that nowhere in the history of religious studies has there been a more rigorously documented and controlled and scientifically valid study showing that psychedelics could truly occasion or induce a mystical experience. Later on, at Johns Hopkins, which has become a center of psychedelic research under Roland Griffith, who is in Griffiths, uh, who is known as the grandfather of the psychedelic renaissance. In 2006 and 2008, uh, Griffiths conducted two pieces of research on psilocybin and mystical experience in which he validated the findings of the miracle of Marsh Chapel. And in that research, um, Griffiths and his associates, including Matt Johnson, uh, found that yes, indeed, psilocybin could create a lasting mystical experience and it could be safely taken in a structured setting 
that it was among the most five meaningful life experiences for the majority of the people in the research, and it had documented improvements in mood and the quality of life. For one year, they were able to trace that 14 months after the particular study. So here we have several things that are remarkable. We have the predictable occasioning or generation of a mystical experience in a university laboratory setting. And in this setting, it was done on uh, people with advanced or terminal cancer. And what they found was it reduced fear of death, it reduced anxiety over death, and so you have what we might call white-coated shamans or modern researchers inducing a religious experience. Number two, they validated that these people had experiences of unity and sacredness, of positive lasting mood changes, of transcendence of time and space, of a sense of, of coming to meet their authoritative spiritual self or true voice, which alleviated their fear of death. And that these experiences were, to a great extent, beyond time and space and difficult to put onto words. In fact, the intensity of the dosage, the higher the dose. So we talk about set, what is the mental set you're bringing to the experience? We talk about setting, what is the environment that it's being taken in? In this case, with eye shades on, relaxed, lying down on a couch with two therapists uh, sitting next to you to be available to help guide you. But the other important factor is the dose. And these were relatively high-dose psilocybin, um, synthetic psilocybin dosages, about uh, 20 to 30 uh, micrograms per 70 kilograms of body weight, equivalent to about four grams of dried psilocybin cubensis mushrooms. The higher the dose, the more meaningful, the, the greater number of people who said this was one of the most meaningful lifetime experiences. The higher the dose, the more people, the greater percentage, up to 70%, who said it was the most spiritually significant experience of their lifetime. And there was a direct correlation between measured therapeutic efficiency and post-session mystical experience. And as Griffiths says, look, and I'm quoting him, he is uh, the, a pharmacologist, psychopharmacologist, and professor of behavioral biology at Johns Hopkins University. As he said, it is very common for people who have profound mystical type experiences to report very positive changes in attitudes about themselves, their lives, their relationships with others, end quote. And he also said, look, as a scientific phenomenon, if you can achieve or create a condition in which 70% of the subjects achieve positive, lasting results in one or two sessions, exclamation point. This is, these are quite dramatic findings. So to summarize, we've been able to create, using uh, significant dosages of psilocybin, mystical experiences in the laboratory 
are in a controlled research setting, and these can be replicated. And these have the people who are involved with the development of the field of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy extremely excited about the potential of this research. So, Brooke, what do you think? Pretty interesting stuff, huh? Uh, yeah, boy, it's uh, super interesting. And, you know, it it, it, it makes me, um, you know, I think that those of us who had these experiences in, in college and in, in earlier years where we were um, uh, exploring different uh, modes of consciousness in a very active way. I think that once you're out of that college environment, and I've said this in different ways to, to different people, once you're out of that college environment, uh, you don't have the access, you know, you're not going to shows as much as you used to. You're not, you know, you don't have access to these substances. And I think the, the part of what uh, Jerry Brown is getting at, uh, and it might be more in the second segment, is how beneficial these experiences can be for later in life. For um, I know that we mentioned specifically areas of, of uh, end of life, hospice, geriatrics and gerontology. However, you might add to that midlife crisis. You might add to that, you know, all the things that happen in your 30s and your 40s and your 50s that, you know, could really benefit from deeper examination and, 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 and expansive examination. Uh, I wish that I had you know, had the benefit uh, of, of these particular substances uh, more during those decades, right? Uh, um, but I at least had the experience that I could bring into those, you know, later life developmental stages uh, that, you know, kind of lent its own stability, you know, created a kind of stability that I don't think would have been there uh, had I not done some of the work that I did earlier. Now, um, as science progresses and as this medicine progresses and also as the pop culture progresses, you know, with, with, uh, there, there are actually ayahuasca churches in central Florida. You don't have to go to Costa Rica anymore to, uh, legally partake in these, uh, experiments or in these, uh, consciousness expansion, uh, states, Colorado just, uh, made, uh, psilocybin mushrooms, uh, legal, for uh, personal use. It's always been that way in Jamaica. I mean, yeah, it, 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 the laws have been different and, and they're really uh, starting to relax. You can go to a spa now uh, and do ketamine therapy. So we're starting to embrace this in a way that I could not have imagined when I was in uh, college and grad school. Uh, never would have seen you know, spas opening up that that it's ridiculously expensive and it's not something that I would do just because 
you know, who wants to spend $3,000 on, on, a, on something like that. Maybe if you're experiencing depression, which is what that is actually for, then, then it's, then it's worth it. But, um, I'm really looking forward to when we can see these kinds of substances used in uh, psychotherapy, you know, uh, in, in, in more relaxed kind of environments. I think that it's, it, that it's going to be very beneficial. And maybe this is something that, uh, that uh, baby boomers and generation X can, can push this through so that the generations behind us can also benefit from that as they also go through these development developmental stages of life. I had uh, gotten interested uh, in mental development as a very uh, young man. And uh, I heard over and over again that old saw uh, that, that we only use 10% of our mind. So it, it, it intrigued me. Uh, even uh, late in middle school and early in high school, that uh, there must be people who thought about this. There must be people who develop techniques and traditions to enhance the mind and to expand and train the mind. Uh, you know, granted, education plays its part in rote memorization and maybe some uh, important conceptual framing. But it seemed to me that the real problem was about the brain and training the brain. So I I participated in brain uh, memorization experiments and uh, tried the, a variety of mental techniques to enhance uh, and train perception and train memory. And uh, as I read more and more, I, I ran into people like uh, Dr. Lilly, who was experimenting with the consciousness of dolphins and experimenting with communicating with dolphins. And of course, I ran eventually into Huxley and Pitchu Ludlow. And then literally, uh, I changed from uh, one state of consciousness, Pennsylvania, to a new state of consciousness in Florida, just in time for this, uh, this uh, drug revolution. And I had never heard of the idea of recreational drugs. Drugs was what you got when you were sick. And uh, when I saw in the popular press these stories about recreational drugs, I thought, my God, uh, what a curious thing that people would would adopt these techniques to, for intoxication. Gosh, wasn't alcohol enough. So I began to read literature about it. And of course, I eventually came across uh, Dr. Lilly, uh, Dr. Leary and Metzner and a few others doing this serious research. And I, I read the studies about uh, the, the, uh, the famous uh, experiment in church where they dosed religious divinity students. And uh, so I proposed to my high school sophomore biology teacher that I do a field study on what, what was going on with this psychedelic phenomena, and he essentially approved my study. So in addition wow. to doing field work with the University of Miami on a rodent study, I was doing a study on the rats running around the high school, and I came at this not in any kind of legalistic framework, but I came across this. I, I fancied myself something of a young anthropologist. I'd read widely in anthropology. And this was a, a tribal study in my, in my mind. I was uh, doing research on a particular tribal culture. And uh, so when eventually I did, having steeped myself in all the lore, uh, I did eventually try my, my own hand at this experience. I had time after time 
religious transcendental experiences, and uh, I found them uh, with, along with Dr. Lilly, uh, Dr. Leary, and Dr. Alfred, eventually Baba Ram Das. These can be very, very instrumental, not in under, not only in understanding your own but improving the way you with people and giving you a window on literally the mind itself, uh, examining the microscope that we use in this world. And I, I found it tremendously worthwhile. And uh, only <laughs> had I only known of Dr. Brown at the time, it would have I would have had a much different college experience. <laughs> well, you know. What I find so interesting about what you said right there is that you did you did all of this study and you had this you had your arms wrapped around what the ideas of consciousness expansion uh, was all about. You know, you you were you were grasping that, and that's what you were were looking for. That's very different from I know a lot of people um, who are my contemporaries in the late '80s. Uh, in in college, uh, uh, went about this in in a kind of uh, oh it's a fun club drug kind of way or it's it's fun it's something fun to do when you go see a big concert or something um, and it, that is that is there's not a right or wrong way to do this however that is not the best way to do it and I think that you you take a lot more out of the experience if you have in a set and setting kind of way, if you have set the table in your, in your mind with a little bit, you don't have to go super deep into the literature, but like a little bit of understanding of what these experiences are about and what they can provide you going forward. It, It makes for a much richer experience. And I think that's what makes it something that you can take into life ongoing. Otherwise, and I, I know quite a few people like this. Otherwise, what you have are a lot of disjunctive experiences, you know, where, oh, it was fun to do at the club that time or that time that we went camping or blah, blah, blah. And what was that about? And you're left for many, many years wondering, what was that about? So, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. You can do this figuring out um, uh, what it's what it's about at the same time or before uh, that's part of gnosis. That's part of this, uh, you know, coming to know and, uh, and keeping our eyes on that, I think is what keeps you balanced. You know, a lot of people are afraid of, you know, what is this going to do to me? Am I going to go jump out a window? Is it going to make you crazy? You know, blah, blah, blah. Grounding is grounding and it, and it, and it applies in all areas. If you seek to ground yourself and you seek to understand your experiences, you're far less likely to, um, to get lost in them, you know, which isn't to say, you know, this isn't for everybody, you know, some folks are, uh, do suffer from uh, extreme forms of anxiety and extreme forms of this, uh, this or that, you know, I would add, uh, you know, different personality disorders and different types of mental illness. And that is, to me, what is so exciting about the study of this being moved into, uh, into the area of psychology and, and therapy and psychoanalysis and so on and so forth, because I believe that these substances can, and these approaches can really help people and really help heal people, but it's got to be done in a, in a serious kind of way. 
Well, I, I came across in my reading some marvelous books, and I'll only mention two of them right now before I remind everyone that uh, Dr. Brown and his wife have co-authored a, a tremendous book called The Psychedelic Gospels, The Secret History of Hallucinogens in Christianity. I want to mention also uh, Aldous Huxley's book, Not Just the Doors of Perception, but a novelized book he written called Island. And if you have interest in these arenas, definitely you need to take a look at Huxley's book, The Island. Uh, I think you'll find he has treated what a psychedelic culture might be like. And it's a very intriguing book. But again, let me recommend Professor Brown's uh, The Psychedelic Gospels. And now, uh, Brooke, you ready for part two? Can't wait. Let's do it. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. We will continue our discussion with Professor Jerry Brown, uh, a researcher into the fields of not only anthropology, but of the psychedelic experience and its many therapeutic and uh, human uses. Professor Brown. Yes. Well, it's good to be back. Um, It's a very interesting example Rick, that you gave there with the um, peyote. Uh, Peyote has been used for millennia by the Huichol Indians of Mexico. And with the coming of the Spaniard and the seeing of all of these uh, mushrooms and and, um, morning glory vines and peyote, they saw this as the devil's weed, this sort of went underground. And while they ostensibly for 300 years worshiped Christianity, and integrated and syncretized uh, symbols of Christianity into their their religion, they never let go of the peyote cult, the way of the peyote. It was in the 1880s, after the devastation of Wounded Knee II, Wounded Knee, and the final defeat of the Sioux Indians, that peyote, which was an inner-directed religion, spread like wildfire up like Mexico, up from Mexico, Uh, through the Central Plains and out to many of the uh, Native American peoples. Um, Because there is a demonstrated historical religious use of peyote in, uh, in the Native American church, the Supreme Court allowed the exception of peyote, which is an illegal substance under the Controlled Substances Act, to be used in the Native American church. There are about uh, 300,000 Native Americans who use peyote in their religious rituals. Um, Later on in the 1990s, there was something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And it also allows, it, it is through that act, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act 1993, that allows ayahuasca to be used in the two branches of the Brazilian churches that utilize ayahuasca, Santo Deme, Santo Deme, and the Unión de Vegetal, the UDV. So what we have now is the federal approval of two groups of people using psychedelics. The interesting thing here is that there was a way to both integrate Christian religion and symbolism 
into indigenous practices. For example, Maria Sabina, who is probably the world's most famous shamanic healer, a Mazatec native in the state of Oaxaca in Mexico, whose life was documented by Gordon Wasson, a, uh, a, a mushroom seeker. And he became the first quote unquote white outsider to experience the mushroom velada. Uh, in her ceremonies, she says, uh, and, and I quote from her chants, our shooting star woman, our shooting star woman, our whirling woman of the colors, our woman of the field, ah, our Jesus Christ, our woman santo, our woman santo, ah, our Jesus Christ, our spirit woman. So we see that a syncretic process has taken place here. And basically in our own research, uh, which I'd be happy to get into, which documented through photographs of psychoactive mushrooms, Amanita muscaria and psilocybin in early Christian and medieval Christian art. Um, that Christianity itself has a psychedelic history. And we do not, did not undertake this research, do, nor do we educate it to undermine anyone's faith in Christianity or in any religious belief but hopefully to reintroduce them to a religious phenomena that's been there through hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, uh, we quote in our book, The Psychedelic Gospels, The Secret History of Hallucinogens in Christianity, Brother David Stendhal Rost, who is of the Order of St. Benedict. And he says the following, um, I contemplate the possibility of encountering God through all available sacraments. Faith simply accepted with gratefulness that God works through all created things. All question mark. If we can encounter God through a sunrise seen from a mountaintop, why not through a mushroom prayerfully ingested? So what I want to suggest here and, uh, is that these substances are fundamentally uh, not anathema to religion, although they were banned by Christianity with the coming of the Inquisition, which demonized the wise women of medieval Europe who maintained these sacred plant traditions and turned them into the satanic witches. And this was a direct reaction we talk about a plague today uh, to the Black Plague, the bubonic plague that swept through Europe in about uh, 1348 to 1352, killing off one third to, in some people's estimations, up to 60% of the population of Europe, including the clergy. And the church, which had the hotline to God, could not protect people from this. So the church looked to scapegoats. And this eventually gave rise to the condemnation of witchcraft as a heresy and to the persecution and burning at the stake of many uh, hundreds of thousands of witches, mainly women witches. So what we have today with the legalization of peyote and of um, 
ayahuasca and ayahuasca, the use of ayahuasca in Santo Deme and in the UDV in Brazil is approved by the Brazilian Council of Bishops. So these two traditions of a major world religion and psychedelics can exist. And if they give people a deeper sense of spirituality, of ritual and connection with God, then there's a value. Will we one day see that integrated into a major Judaism, Christianity? I don't know how long that might take. I hope it happens faster than it took the Catholic Church to pardon and forgive Galileo 300 years uh, after it persecuted him uh, during the, the Inquisition. But I think that religious leaders who are also taking part in some of this research on meditation versus prayer versus psychedelics at Johns Hopkins uh, will come to see that, look, we shouldn't leave the religious experience only to the white-coated uh, therapists and researchers. So I think as the research moves forward, that we will eventually be able to reintegrate these substances uh, into our society. Um, we have to get past um, you know, the ghost of Timothy Leary and uh, trying to exercise what happened in the 1960s. A lot of what happened in the 1960s was very positive, certainly in my own life and the life of many others. And we would not have a psychedelic renaissance today if we had not gone through um, the psychedelic uh, movement of the 1960s. Some people say it put back the research. Absolutely it did, without a doubt. But it also uh, embedded psychedelics into popular culture, which are now being legitimized. Because as we see with cannabis, legalization follows medicalization. And with the medical successes of psychedelics, we're taking substances that were used from time immemorial among the reindeer herders of Siberia, among the Mazatec of Mexico, among the peyote-taking Cora and Huichol Indians of um, central Mexico, among the um, central African people who use uh, Igbo game in their religious experiences. Um, and in the very basis of the Hindu Rig Veda, embedded is a psychoactive mushroom embedded in the Rig Veda, the oldest of the Hindu scriptures. Uh, we're going to see that uh, there is a new opening for psychedelics in the modern world. You know, one of the things that uh, uh, kind of strikes me about uh, your work, uh, and I'm looking at the I'm looking at the psychedelic gospels right now, and uh, you, you have this map in the introduction of the sacred sites and churches, and it, it, there's some there's some real interesting names on here. So you know you've got Roslyn Chapel in Scotland, and then you've got um, Renmas Chateau in France, and and. There's been such with those two chapels. There's there's been this other kind of uh, uh, lore that got pulled into the um, uh, Dan Brown books 
But it seems yeah. to me that that these and there was no treatment of of this kind of iconography and this kind of lore. And I and I'm starting to wonder, hey, maybe that that damn brown lore, uh, maybe it missed something very significant by not taking this kind of iconography and this kind of lore into account. Um. Absolutely. And, and here's, let's, let's start off with Roslyn Chapel. And in fact, Julie and I, on our 20th anniversary, uh, visited Roslyn Chapel, which is located about seven kilometers, uh, a few miles south of Edinburgh in Scotland. We had read the Dan Brown books. Uh, we had read the Da Vinci Code in which Roslyn Chapel was described as a possible resting place of the Holy Grail, the, the uh, remains of the Virgin Mary. And we went to Roslyn Chapel, and Roslyn Chapel is a magnificent small chapel created uh, by Sir William Sinclair. Uh, he started construction in um, 1440s, and it ended in 1480 at the time, in the 1480s at the time of his death. And Roslyn Chapel, which is an official Catholic church for services and for the mass, is unique in Christendom in that it is a blending of both pagan, Old Testament, and New Testament symbolism. And there are, for example, uh, heads, faces of green men, which are pagan fertility symbols sculpted throughout Roslyn Chapel. And many of them, over a hundred of them, are united by a sinuous vine that is sculpted into the wall around Roslyn Chapel. I was fascinated by um, the face of one of the most prominent green men of Roslyn Chapel, which um, stares down. It's over the sacred altars where prayer is conducted at the front of the chapel. If you'll turn to page 13, book of the Psychedelic Gospels. Mm -hmm. And looking up, this statue comes down from a stone box that is suspended from the ceiling about 15 feet above, and is about 8 or 10 feet above our head. And I was fascinated by this enigmatic face. And you can see the leaves and the vines coming out of its mouth. And the, and the leaves around its forehead. I bought a plaster replica of this Roslyn Greenman at the gift store of Roslyn Chapel. And two weeks later, Julie and I were sitting in an Italian restaurant in St. Andrews. And I turned the plaster replica of this Greenman head around on the table. And I was staring at a full-blown Amanita muscaria mushroom sculpted upside down into the forehead of the green man. Now, why has Dan Brown, who is an expert on symbolism, why have art historians, church historians, theologians, tour guides who have visited and marveled at Roslyn Chapel for over 500 years never seen this before? The reason is that they're not tra trained in mycology what, or in psychoactive mycology. What are psychoactive mushrooms? What do they look like? What are their uh, botanical characteristics? And 
they're not trained in ethnomycology, how different cultures use these. So, for example, this um, great Canterbury Psalter, which I mentioned earlier on when I talked about Jesus healing the leper, I showed the green, the, the psychoactive drawings to a prominent art historian at Cambridge University in England who had written a commentary on the Great Canterbury Psalter. And he looked at that and he said, Jerry, I'm sorry, I wouldn't know a mushroom if I saw one. So this is part of the problem. Uh, an anthropologist works in an interdisciplinary framework. So in preparing and teaching this course, course on psychedelics and culture at Florida International University, I had to learn botany, ethnobotany, ethnomycology, religion, um, different shamanic practices. And so I was able to recognize them. Fortunately, while Judy and Julie and I were writing the book, we had the good fortune to meet with Paul Stamets, who is one of the world's foremost mycologists. And he has a book called a Mycelium Running, How Mushrooms Can Help Save the World. He has an incredible website called Fungi Perfecti, Fungi Perfecti. And I showed Paul this picture and I said, Paul, this is the life stages of an Amanita muscaria from the round bulb at the base to the little veil around the stem to the dots on the mushroom, of course, sculpted in. And he said, Jerry, this is a taxonomically correct Amanita muscaria mushroom. And this was a great confirmation from a famous mycologist of our finding. So now, and Julie, who's an incredible researcher, found a reference to a passage in, inscribed in Roslyn Chapel that led us into two Ezra and the Apocrypha, the books that did not get into the Bible, that were an obvious ingestion by a prophet of a psychedelic substance. And now our minds started spinning out. Oh, I have to tell you another synchronicity. Uh, after making that discovery, I took a nap. I told you I was a great napper. And Julie, at our inn in, in Roslyn, in, in, uh, in Edinburgh, in St. Andrews, I'm sorry, after we discovered this in St. Andrews, and Julie taps me on the shoulder and she says, you're never going to believe what's playing at the movie theater. I said, what? She said, the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> so we went and we saw the Da Vinci Code uh, again. And of course, as we learned in... Uh, and uh, at uh, Rene Le Chateau and other research, there's no definitive proof for the theories of Dan Brown, but it makes great reading. Uh, we, as with others, believe that psychoactive mushrooms were um, the original Eucharist. And that's a dramatic statement. And, and I want to back that up a little bit, uh, actually a lot because um, before the year 200 AD, there is no Christian art for a lot of reasons. Persecution, uh, lack of churches, structures on poverty, lack of structures in which to create the art. So we had to also, in our book, The Psychedelic Gospels, go back into the Old Testament and the New Testament 
and the Gnostic Gospels, which were early Christian Gospels that were buried in the sands of Egypt and rediscovered and translated starting in 1954. And let me just give you one example from a passage from the Gnostic Gospels called the Gospel of Thomas. I quote, Jesus said to his disciples, compare me to someone and tell me whom I am like. Thomas said to him, Master, my mouth is wholly incapable of saying whom you are like. Jesus said, I am not your master. Because you have drunk, you have become intoxicated from the bubbling spring which I have measured out. He who will drink from my mouth will become like me. I shall become like he and the things that are hidden will be revealed to him. This and other passages we discovered are remarkable. Jesus is talking about an intoxication through a drink. This is obviously not wine. It is a drink that he is measuring out. In other words, he's talking about, I, I gave you a dose. I measured the dose. And here we have described, I shall become like he and things that are hidden will be revealed. Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven is within. And these substances generate the divine within. So we believe that part of Jesus' experience and those of the disciples and those of the followers of early Christianity, of immortality, of the, of the divine, were inspired by psychoactive mushrooms. We then set out in our, and, and this is also, you can look at other passages. What is Jesus saying when he says, you know, drink of, drink of my blood, eat of my flesh? He's certainly not asking people to become cannibals. That would have been anathema, repugnant to both Jews and Romans alike. We think it involves the um, reference, the poetic reference to the early Eucharist. Now, when we made this discovery at Roslyn in 2006, Julie and I got very excited, and you can imagine the excitement of that once-in-a-lifetime aha movement. I mean, archaeologists and paleontologists can go through their entire lives and never make a major discovery. And we thought, this is a significant discovery. Are there examples of psychedelics in Christian art in other churches? How far does this go? Does this go back to the time of early Christianity? And our minds started racing. And before we got carried away, we thought about two things. One, the words of Carl Sagan, the famous astrophysicist who said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. In other words, if you're gonna make an extraordinary claim that, that Christianity has a psychedelic history, you better have some pretty darn compelling evidence. And then I remember the words of my esteemed professor of symbolic anthropology at Cornell University, Victor Turner, who said, good theory comes from good research. Go out and do the field work. So it took us until about 2012 till we were able to undertake a six-month sabbatical and research journey 
through Europe and the Middle East, uh, visiting places that you see uh, on the map in our book, The Psychedelic Gospels, traveling to England, to France, to Germany, to Italy, including to the museums of the Vatican, to Greece, the site of the Eleusinian Mysteries, to the cave churches of Turkey. And wherever we went, we found and photographed with my wife and co-author Julie taking all of the photographs, images of psychedelic mushrooms, the red and white Amanita muscaria mushroom and the psilocybin mushroom in Christian art. What do we mean by Christian art? We mean in mosaics on floors and walls. We mean frescoes, wall paintings from medieval times, sculpture as we saw in Roslyn Chapel, illuminated Bibles and prayer books, and, these, this, and, and stained glass windows at the famous Shark Cathedral, where we found psychedelic mushroom images in seven of the 176, and we counted every one of them, uh, stained glass windows in Shark uh, Cathedral. We found this in very small chapels and abbeys where monks lived and worked. We found this in churches, and we found this in major cathedrals, such as Canterbury Cathedral, such as Shark Cathedral, such as the famous St. Michael's Church in Hildesheim, Germany. In many cases, we don't know who actually created the art. Was it the artist himself? Was it the church fathers who commissioned the art? Was it the patrons of the church? who funded the art? Was it all three of them working together, wanting to convey a message? But in the case of Hildesheim, we know precisely who created it. It was Bishop Bernward, who was later sainted by the Catholic Church 200 years after his death, who was a major figure to the extent that he was the tutor to Otto III, who became the Holy Roman emperor. And he gave us an incredible legacy of psychedelics embedded in bronze doors that he cast, and also his descendants, monastic descendants, created a, a, a ceiling painting, a 90-foot long ceiling painting of the Jesse tree that starts out in the Garden of Eden with a powerful Amanita muscaria psychedelic uh, image. I can walk you through specifically through a few of these key discoveries, uh, but I don't know if you have some additional questions at this point. Um, well, yeah, I think that that would be really cool because it, it feels to me, I have, I have a lot of interest in, in Gnosticism and specifically how Gnosticism and the idea of Gnosis is reemerging in, in pop culture. Like, uh, it just, it, it's wonderful and it's also odd. And I think that, that one of the reasons why, uh, why we see it more is I think you're seeing another wave of, of, of interest in, in the psychedelic experience and the idea of gnosis kind of fits together with that. It kind of helps people make sense of, what they're experiencing and how that has a historical framework, you know, that, that we're not just out here on our, on our own. 
Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, Elaine Pagels of Princeton University uh, Theology has written a book uh, called the Gnostic Gospels, and she makes a very clear threefold distinction between Orthodox Christianity, which by 200 eventually came to dominate and to suppress many of the other Christian uh, belief systems and traditions that were going on, including the very powerful Gnostic uh, movement. Uh, she said, look, first, Orthodox Christians believe that God is wholly other, wholly separated from humanity. While the Gnostics contradict this and have the belief that self-knowledge is knowledge of God. In other words, the self and the divine are identical. We are, in essence, divine beings. Secondly, the Orthodox Christians contend that Jesus did not come to save humanity from sin. In other words, unlike Orthodox Christians, the Gnostics believe that Jesus did not come to save humanity from sin. He came to serve as a guide to show the way to spiritual enlightenment. And therefore, this is, this is fundamental to the way that we saw in the Gospel of Thomas that God and, and humanity are one. So it was a very different tradition. Now let's fast forward to modern times because we're finding in, in resurgence of Wicca, in resurgence of spirituality, the New Age movement, the Gnostic movement, and many of these um, what were earlier marginal movements growing into prominence as mainstream religious attendance and participation declines. And this is documented by the Pew Research Center for Religious Studies, which found that 20% of Americans say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And when you go to the youth, it's 33%. In other words, I'm spiritual. I believe that the world is sacred. I believe there is a divine presence in the world. Uh, but I don't do it through a traditional religious framework. And all of these different avenues, whether it be Wicca, whether it be paganism, whether it be New Age, whether it be you know, Deepak Chopra's uh, God is Revelation uh, works, I see these all as spokes on the same wheel that lead as meditation can lead, as service can lead to the fundamental truth that there is a spiritual dimension to humanity and to our lives and what psychedelics do in creating the altered state of consciousness is allow us to access it in ways that when we're dealing with everyday things change the oil in the car pay, pay the bills make sure you put your mask on today that we can't possibly uh, contemplate stanislav groff is the founder of LSD psychotherapy. Uh, when he was a Freudian psychotherapist back in the 1950s in Prague, he received from Sandoz Laboratories and Dr. Albert Hoffman uh, LSD. And they wanted therapists, psychiatrists, to try it out on patients because they felt it mimicked psychosis and it could helpfully, possibly be helpful in curing it. Stanislav Grof developed LSD psychotherapy, and he has guided over 3,000 LSD trips 
more than any human being. His collected works are in a two-volume series of books called The Way of the Psychonaut, Groff, G-R-O-F, The Way of the Psychonaut, that I recommend to anyone interested in learning about the foundations and applications of psychedelics. Uh, when these became illegal, he developed holotropic breathwork to try to re, uh, recapitulate, to, to create similar experiences, altered states of consciousness. And he came to this phenomenal conclusion out of all of his work that leads to a paradigm shift. I quote, I see consciousness and the human psyche as expressions and reflections of a cosmic intelligence that permeates the entire universe and all of existence. We are not just highly evolved animals with biological computers inside our skulls. We are also fields of consciousness without limits, transcending time, space, matter, and linear causality, end quote. Stanislav Grof, the holotropic mind. And that is where the mystical experience lives in those expanded fields of consciousness that is so fundamental to all religious traditions, and we're also singing to uh, psychotherapeutic healing. Professor, before we uh, sign off, I know we are about to lose you. Uh, why don't you give the uh, the name of your book again? And uh, I imagine you have a website or a Facebook site as well, so that people who are further who want to get uh, more information from you. Uh, might be able to get in touch with you and read more about your work? Yes, uh, with pleasure. Our book is called The Psychedelic Gospels, The Secret History of Hallucinogens and Christianity, and it is a documentation and analysis of the multiple case studies we discovered throughout Europe and the Middle East of psychedelic images in Christian art. It's available on Amazon and many other bookseller platforms. Our website is www.psychedeliggospelsoneword.com, psychedeliggospels.com. And we also have a Facebook page called Psychedelic Gospels, two words, Facebook Psychedelic Gospels, where we post our recent findings, our blogs, and other discoveries being made by organizations like uh, MAPS.org, which are at the forefront of psychedelic medical research. And one last question, if I may, sir. Uh, if, uh, if you were to advise someone, I, I realize this is kind of thin ice and dangerous territory, but if you were to advise someone who was interested in learning more about these on a personal basis, where would you direct them for the guidance that we all know the beginning uh, psychonaut needs to, to make sure that their trip is uh, a positive and constructive one. Okay, yeah, for people interested in the trend of microdosing, that is taking sub-hallucinogenic small doses of LSD or psilocybin, I recommend two websites. One is Third Wave, which has very excellent information on microdosing. And the other is a site called microdosingpsychedelics.com, microdosingpsychedelics.com. Uh, secondly, for anyone interested in learning about psychedelics, learning the safety issues, 
when, you know, who should not take psychedelics, uh, learning how to identify and work with guides because there are hundreds and hundreds of guides around the country. And all I can say is seek and you shall find. Uh, I, there's one book above all that I recommend. It's Jim Fadiman, F-A-D-I-M-A-N, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. It is a comprehensive guidebook to anything you would want to know for the first time explorer of the psychedelic experience, the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Professor. This has been very much an enlightening experience. Brooke, any final words, my friend? Uh, No, I just want to thank you so much. This was a fabulous uh, discussion. And I took a lot of notes. I feel like I was in like the best class ever. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I hope to to put my course up on the web since everything's going on the web someday. So uh, maybe you will be able to do that, Brooke. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be on your show. I very much, Julie and I, very much appreciate the invitation to share our work on the psychedelic gospels. And our our best regards to your wife as well. Thank you. Have a good day, sir. Bye-bye. Brooke, any last words? Well, you know, I would like to uh, underscore a couple things. One is that we're going to be doing a lot more of these kind of cultural uh, and social science oriented kind of shows and get in touch with us if you're interested in discussing uh, your work. Anyone out there listening, if you've done any work in uh, any of these fields, just give us a heads up and we'd love to bring you on the show. And Also, you know, uh, at the end of that interview, I I mentioned that I took a bunch of notes, and one of the notes that I have here is on the mystical experience, and uh, Dr. Jerry Brown gave us one, two, three, four, five uh, components of this mystical experience, and and he mentioned that for true healing, that that true healing kind of comes through this, this mystical experience. And there's one of these components that I think is is really important. Um, so he mentions being positive, and he mentions uh, establishing a connection. He mentions uh, feeling out of time and space, you know, and, which is about going meta, about being able to see, to transcend, and be above what what you're doing. That's kind of what that's about. There's the ineffable, and then there's the authentic voice. The authentic voice is sometimes called the still small voice, and it's that voice within us. And it's in and it, I know that there are uh, it, it's very fashionable, and that there are a lot of people who bristle at the idea of the spiritual, and that's because we've often been brought up in regressive churches. <clears throat> It, 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 and that's interdenominational. Like all churches can be uh, a bit regressive. Um, but finding that still small voice, the voice from within, the the uh, the uh, that which is divine, that which which is from within, the idea that true healing comes from there, I think, is so powerful. 
and it's not been explored quite enough. And it's one of the pieces that I took away from this conversation and have been uh, just finding myself going back to repeatedly. Because it's been about a week or so since we did this. And I am just fascinated with this idea. And so uh, we'll we'll see. I'll I'll be doing a little bit more with that one little piece. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that that first semester uh, I took – the three classes and mysticism was one of them. Mysticism class in the philosophy department was Eastern, Western, all of the different traditions. You had Taoism, you had uh, the, um, the Judaic mystic traditions, Christian mystic traditions, so on and so forth. The still small voice runs through every one of the mystical traditions. And the fact that these experiences give us access to that little authentic voice, which is inside. I think it's one of the more valuable and more accessible things that people can take away from the experience or go into the experience looking for. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, new exploration ahead. Stay tuned. And on behalf of myself uh, and my good friend, Brooke, I want to wish you a happy voyage, Brooke. Bon voyage. <laughs> Have a good trip. Bye-bye. You too. <laughs>